0: If you would, take your Bibles and turn them to Psalm 5. Psalm 5 is where we find ourselves as we make our way through some of these initial psalms. And we can't be certain, but it's likely that Psalms 3 to uh, 7 really have a similar context. We're given the historical context in Psalm 3 of David and Abs- David uh, fleeing from Absalom, his son. We're not told that that's the context of 4, 5, 6, and 7, but there are some hints that there, these are connected psalms, The repetitions of words. And so it's very possible David is in the same uh, circumstance, big circumstance of fleeing from Absalom as he writes all of these psalms in this uh, first section. And so... Uh, it's very possible chapter 5 is one of those as well let's go ahead and read psalm 5 follow along as i read it for us to the choir master for the flutes a psalm of david give ear to my words o yahweh consider my groaning give attention to the sound of my cry My king and my God. For to you do I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. Yahweh abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Yahweh, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth and let them ever sing for joy, and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Yahweh. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the living God, which speaks to us even this morning. May he write its truth on our heart. The God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath. The God in the New Testament was a God of love. My God is a God of love. He is not a God of wrath, hatred. God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. Now, before Mike and Richie come up to take me off the stage and fire me, I don't believe these statements. <laughs> but that's maybe something you've heard before. Maybe you've heard the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is different. He shows love. Actually, there's many expressions of God's love in the Old Testament. Hesed, the, the loyal love of God, the covenant love of God, manifests through the Old Testament. And there's a lot of expressions of God's wrath and anger in the New Testament. Read the book of Revelation, for example. That those who do not know Christ will bear his wrath in the lake of fire in the presence of the Lamb. Maybe you've heard statements when you try to speak to someone about Christ and the gospel and the need for trust in Christ to be spared from the wrath of God, someone might say, well, my God is a God of love. And he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't send someone to hell. There's a lot of responses you can have to that. Uh, One is, what does it mean for someone to love if they hate nothing? If you love something, the corollary to that means that You hate what is opposed to and threatens the object of your love. And so really, it's hard to even make sense of a statement like that. Or, God loves the sinner, but he just hates the sin. The problem with that is, Psalm 5 verse 4 doesn't say that. Psalm 5 verse 4 says, or verse 5, sorry, Psalm 5 5, you hate all evildoers. Wow. What do you do with that verse? Well, you believe it. You don't believe it alone, because there's other passages that, that speak to the character of God and even his general love for even the lost. And yet we must reckon with such statements. It isn't sin abstractly that God casts into the lake of fire, it's sinners. That God casts into the lake of fire. And so we have to reckon with such a passage. But even more than that, this is striking because what we find in Psalm 5 is that David not only asserts these aspects of God's character, but he finds assurance in these aspects. Something that we may be embarrassed of, David finds his boast in. He is in a time of trouble. Uh, he has enemies who are attacking him, either physically or uh, in his reputation, saying words about him. He has these enemies against him. And he is the king of Israel, so he's in somewhat of a unique position. He's the Lord's anointed one. And so an attack against the Lord's anointed one is an especial attack against the Lord himself. And so David here, though, as he prays, finds strength to pray based on God's holiness and God's hatred of not only sin, but sinners. And that informs then his petition to pray that God would judge sinners. And yet far from then David saying, and God judge them because they're bad and I'm good. No, David says nothing like that. David recognizes that he himself deserves the wrath of God And yet, it is because of the abundance of God's love that he can stand in God's house and that he can worship God and he can have a presence with God and talk to God. And so, we have somewhat of a model for how to pray in Psalm 5 as David prays in a time of difficulty. He models prayer for us because... He shows us how to begin. He shows us what to focus upon and even how to form our petitions to God. He's teaching us how to pray even in his prayer. And so I've entitled this A Way to Pray. I thought about entitling this, Does God Hate You? But I decided A Way to Pray, you know, a little bit more vanilla. <laughs> but, uh, but truly, that's a sobering thought. That God does hate people. And that you could be one of those people if you're outside of Christ. We'll look more at that in a moment. Introductions are supposed to orient to the text and grab attention. I hope we've done that in such a way that you would be eager to hear the word of God and what this passage says about the character of God. Let me say one other thing about this passage as we prepare to have the Lord's Supper, is that this is such a gospel-oriented passage. It teaches us about the nature of God and his holiness, his hatred of sin. It teaches us about man and his depravity, that his heart is like an open grave, a passage Paul uses to teach about depravity in Romans 3, to convict the world of sin. And it also tells us of the love of God that is abundant for sinners. And then it tells us how to respond by taking refuge in God. Looking to his character. And so that's a great way for us to prepare to rehearse the gospel even through this psalm as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. So as we look at this passage, we're going to go to the school of prayer and David's lesson for us on how to pray. and There's really... a number of ways to break this down. Some look at five stanzas in this. Some, uh, I had it broken down into four, but then I simplified it even more to three. So there you go. Uh, three uh, ways, principles for biblical prayer that we're going to look at even as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's first consider in these first three verses the preparation needed in prayer. The preparation needed in prayer. Look there again. He gives a, a superscription to tell for the choir master, the worship leader, that this is a, a song that's uh, particularly for flutes, right? That's nice. We used to have a flute player at Faith Bible Church where we were, and it was great. Uh, very worshipful. But here's a flute, some kind of flute instrument. Uh, and this is a psalm written by David, okay? Then he says this. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. It's the preparation needed in prayer. Now, there's a number of things to notice about David's prayer here that are just instructive for us about our prayers. There's an urgency in his prayer. Look at the repetition of phrases as he addresses God. Give ear, he says. Consider. Uh, give heed, or give attention, and hear. Just building up these different statements, showing his urgency here. David is in a a place of desperation, and so he prays desperately, eager and earnest in his prayer. See also the basis or foundation of his prayer. As he addresses God, and he uses a number of different ways to address God, he uses the name Yahweh, which in our English Bibles mostly translate as Lord with all capital letters. That's the covenant name of, of God. And uh, it, it is the word Yahweh. And so he addresses God as the covenant name. This is actually the first time... Um, sorry, sorry, that's the word said. Scratch that. You know, pause for editing. Uh, but uh, this, this word here was first used in Exodus 3, verse 14... Uh, It's for God giving his name to Moses and Israel to know him by. He is the God who is in covenant relationship. Then he addresses God and he says, my God, or my king and my God. It reminded me of Thomas in John 20 when he said to the Lord Jesus after his resurrection, my Lord and my God. It's like he flipped it, right? My God, my Lord is like another way of saying my master, my king, my sovereign. David is king, but he recognizes there's an authority above him. And so he prays to God as the, the king of kings. This is the basis of his, of his prayer. Derek Kidner says the, this, the covenant relationship expressed by the repeated my gives the prayer a firm footing. So we, we come to God, we come with a firm footing when we come to him based upon his character of being the covenant God, if we are in covenant with him. There's also rich variety in David's prayer. Notice the different expressions that he uses to speak about his prayer. He has an ordinary prayer uh, where he says, My words, my words. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. This is just a general way to say, I mean, prayer is speaking words to God. But then he gives another kind of prayer when he says, Consider my groaning. Consider my groaning. And this word, it, it may be groaning, but it's also really the same kind of root from the word that we have in psalm 1 verse 2 that speaks about meditating meditating using psalm 39 verse 3 to speak about musing or uh, really uh this meditate it could be meditating musing murmuring it's think about hannah in first samuel uh, 1 when she's at the temple praying and she's praying the lord would give her a, a a child and uh and Samuel thinks that she's, uh, or excuse me, uh, uh, Eli thinks that, uh, yeah, Samuel's not born yet. <laughs> he is the answer to prayer. Uh, Eli thinks that she's drunk because she's like murmuring and, and she's not really saying much, but she's, she's like mouthing things. And that's kind of this idea here. It's this groaning in prayer, this inaudible, inexpressible prayer. I don't remember if you've ever prayed that way. You, you don't even know what to say, but there's just these groans that are inaudible. I, I don't even know how to express this, but you're just, you 're still praying before god it's it 's like David knew about romans eight twenty six before romans eight twenty six and we read there, likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we, for, what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. sometimes we pray like that we just we don 't know how to pray, and th- those are times when We just can't even give words to our prayer. And yet God hears, God knows those expressions of our heart. So he speaks that way. But not only that, but intense prayer. He says, my cries. Give attention to the sound of my cry. This is a very audible prayer. Used many times of many different saints in the Old Testament, crying out to God. All of these are legitimate prayer and welcomed by God. There's just a variety of prayer that David uh, highlights for us. And then there's a priority in David's prayer that we see. He, he says in verse three, "O Yahweh, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning. David made a practice of praying in the morning, also praying in the evening, also praying in <laughs> the day. In fact, Psalm 119, one thir- 164 says, uh, not necessarily a Psalm of David, but seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Seven times a day. I mean, don't don't get like overly realistic. It's probably a way of speaking about a completeness, right? Uh, It it is just constantly, constantly talking to the Lord, constantly praying to the Lord. I mean, this is like pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians. He prays in the morning. He makes a priority of prayer. What's your morning routine like? I wonder. Now... What I say is autobiographical. Uh, is, your, is, your, is your morning the first thing to do to grab your phone on the nightstand? Is it on the nightstand? Uh, and, and look at the news or, or the sports or the, you know, your email or whatever and begin the day immediately with your phone? I don't know anything special about you. I just know my own heart <laughs> and my tendencies. Uh, and I know this is a temptation to begin our day with just, all right, let's just jump into it. What's the to do list? What's the task to do? Uh, David begins his day in prayer. Graham Scrooge says, The first hour is to the day what the rudder is to the ship. Therefore, pray in the morning. It's a good practice. Now, I'm not saying you need to spend four hours in prayer in the morning. If you have the time, go for it. Praise God. You'd be much more godly for it. But I'm saying, do you just consciously acknowledge, God, thank you for another day. Please give me your grace today. Please help me to uh, live in light of the gospel today. Lord, and maybe you you read a passage of scripture and you pray through that passage of scripture. It's a great practice. David models for us in showing the priority of prayer. Then we see uh, the preparation of prayer, which is really the main point in these first three verses. And where do I get that? Where do I get this idea of the preparation of prayer? Well, the ESV in verse 3 says, In the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. Now, what you have in the text is a word that's used for preparing something, for arranging something, for ordering something. Now, this word was typically used for ordering wood for the sacrifices. The Levites would order the wood in a particular manner. Uh, they would order the showbread uh, in the temple and the tabernacle in a particular manner for worship of God. And so ESV supplies the idea of sacrifice here because the word is typically used for sacrifices, arranging the wood, arranging the showbread. But the the idea of sacrifice is actually not in the original text, but they're making a, a legitimate connection to why it could be that. And so some will take this and say, oh, he's talking about bringing a sacrifice. I don't necessarily think that's what David is getting at here. I think the context is prayer, but David is using a word, a worship word, and he's really saying, just like just like the Levites order their order the the, sac- the wood for the sacrifice or w- the wood for the fire for the sacrifice, and just like the Levites order the showbread, I'm ordering my prayer to you, O God. That's the idea here. In fact, the the NASB has it that way. I will order my prayer to you. So it's not a sacrifice, but it's his prayer that's being ordered. But it's using a a worship word for that arrangement. Ideas to arrange or put in order. One writer said, I will set in order my requests to you. Now we might think this is kind of unspiritual of David, you know, to kind of order out and, and think about his prayers before he prays. Not a lot of spontaneity in that. But what's interesting is there's kind of both in this passage. There's both a spontaneity in his prayer and yet an ordering in his prayer as well. There's an urgency in his prayer where he's calling out to God and yet there's an intentionality in his prayer as well. I I mentioned last week that as a a suggestion to help your prayers is sometimes to write out your prayers. Now, you don't have to do that word for word. Maybe you just write out kind of somewhat of an outline of some of the things that you want to address to God in prayer and then use that as a guiding way for you if you're struggling in your prayers a very good thing to do. I don't think it's unspiritual. I think it's very helpful. I think David gives us warrant for that here as he prepares his prayers. He, he is arranging them. He's putting them in order. He's not flippant. I think what this is getting at is the thoughtlessness that can be present in our prayers at times. We spoke about this a little bit last time. Or just a mindlessness in prayer. Well, there are so many Christian cliche type words that we can just If we just pile together, they become like barnacles associated with our prayers that they just kind of pile up. And if we say enough of these spiritual words, then we've prayed. But we've kind of gone mindless and we just recite these various words and we've forgotten. And we, It's almost in an irreverent kind of way. One writer I was reading, he, he pointed out something that I've heard so many times just as he observed it. And it was like the way people use the word just in prayer. Not God's justice, but just. Lord, we just pray to you this morning that you would just be here with us and just welcome, you know, we welcome your spirit in just this and just that. And, and, and we just want, you know, and, and it's this constant repetition of that. And certainly, probably all of us have been guilty of something like that before. Slow down if you must. Or filler words. I remember praying uh, I had a, many years ago, no one in this room, uh, that when he prayed, he would like almost after every sentence, you would say, Lord God, Father, Lord God, Father, you know, Lord God, Father, we ask you that you would be with us, Lord God, Father, and it was borderline, you know, breaking the commandment not to take the Lord's name in vain, just to constantly use it as a filler word and losing its meaning, and so I think that's what David's after here, to have a prepared prayer, not a straitjacket, but a freeing preparedness that we may not be thoughtless in our prayers. I've been helped greatly by a number of uh, books of highlighting the prayers of others just to grow in that. I mean, of course, the Psalms are that book, right? The Psalms are a book about prayer and how to pray. We're secretly doing a series on prayer through the Psalms, right? It's like uh, I'm sneaking in a, a, a prayer series by preaching the Psalms because I need this and you need this. We need this as a church to grow in our prayer. And as we learn how David prays, and the psalmists pray, we grow in our prayer. But there's others as well. Valley of Vision or Puritan prayers, very helpful. Matthew Henry has a book as well. And you can benefit even from others just through church history, reading their prayers. How did they pray as they learned to pray from Scripture? And they may be a little closer to our time period as well. This is the preparedness in prayer that David has. And just a couple other observations. There's an expectancy in his prayer. He says... In verse three, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, or I order my prayer to you, and watch, and watch. This is an eager watching, it's expectant. So it was used of the, this word watch was used of the prophets who were eagerly waiting for God to respond with a word from the Lord for an answer. And so David, uh, he uses that sense here of eagerly waiting for God to answer and watch. I think this is getting at believing prayer, believing prayer. Sometimes we pray and we just... Throw it out there, we're kind of skeptical that God's going to answer here. And that was the case in Acts 12. Remember? They're like, Peter's in prison. They're like, we need a prayer meeting. Let's pray for Peter. Let's pray that the Lord would, you know, we don't know all the w- things that they prayed, but surely they were praying that the Lord would allow him to be uh, freed from his imprisonment and be used in his imprisonment. And then Peter gets let out by an angel. He, he walks up to the house, he knocks on the door, and a servant girl opens the door, and she's like, Peter. She goes back in, she's like, Peter's at the door. And they're like, no, he's not. Come on. You know, it's like, they just don't even think that their prayer could be answered. No, it's not Peter. And then there he is. God answered. And so we need to have this believing prayer. Expectancy in our prayers. And then he prayed persistently. He, he, this, these words are in this idea of he's continually doing this. I just heard this week that a young man I'd prayed for for almost 10 years that the Lord would save him has professed faith in Christ. And I was like, this is incredible. I had conversations with him. I prayed for him. Uh, and, and it's like, wow, like he's finally starting to express his faith outwardly. And it's like, that is so amazing. And yet there were times when I was like, just believe, dude. Come on. Just trust in Christ. <laughs> you understand the gospel. You know it. And yet the Lord worked in his timing and yet I had to persist in praying. And so what great lessons here, even in just these first three verses About the preparedness of prayer, but all these ways David teaches us to pray as he prays. As you can see, there's both a balance, there's a balance in David's prayer. He's both passionate in prayer and prepared in his prayer. Maybe his preparedness helps him in his passion for the Lord as he strategically chooses what he will say to the Lord. Each word chosen intentionally and not flippantly thrown out. Now, don't hear me wrong. There is definitely a time for first spontaneity. Just pray whatever. It's better that you just pray to the Lord <laughs> and, and cry out to the Lord. I'm not saying, you know, first you have to write an essay to the God and then say it to him. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying if that helps to focus your prayers, absolutely do that. But here's the easiest thing you can do from a pastoral perspective. Just take the Psalms. Take Psalm 5. And later you walk through it verse by verse. And whatever comes to your mind related to that, then you pray that back to God. You use it as like a springboard, as a, as a guide for you in your prayers. Like David holding your hand and he's saying, oh, God is, he's talking about God's justice. And oh God, and you just start talking about God's justice to the Lord and his holiness. Let that be a guide for you in your prayer. You'll never run out of things to pray if you pray the scriptures. So this is the preparation needed in prayer. David continues though to instruct us in how to pray. By showing us then the perfections to be praised in prayer. The perfections to be praised in prayer. Verses 4 to 7. Look at verse 4. It says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. This word for indicates the basis for something. David prays believingly in verse 3, expectantly, eagerly looking because he knows who God is. He knows that God is a God who does not delight in wickedness. So if it is his condition with Absalom and he prays for justice to be done, he's confident God is going to answer. He's eagerly waiting for God to answer because he knows the God to whom he's praying does not take delight in wickedness. And so wickedness is being perpetuated against David and so he prays in light of God's righteousness, holiness, justice. Now, Did you ever consider that God already knows all these things about himself? (laughs) Like, God, David is is not informing God of something. He doesn't believe God has amnesia. God is suffering from identity crisis. God, let me just remind you, you, you are this way. That is not the point of prayer. And yet, that is what we often see in prayer. The people of God reminding God of who he is. God, you are this way. God, you are, you're like this. Now, David is teaching us a lesson here about prayer. One of the most important aspects of prayer is rehearsing the character of God, rehearsing the perfections of God to ourselves and to God in in a way that relates to our present situation. This has a dual purpose, this rehearsing and reminding God of his character and perfections. It magnifies God because it's praise to him and it moves us. It both recognizes God's worth and reassures our hearts that God is praised in it and we are brought peace. As we remind God who He is, the benefit for us is a calmed heart. Because this God, who is the rock, who doesn't change, is still the same. And we've reminded ourselves. Look what David highlights about God's perfections. He says, First, he considers of God's holiness, God's holiness, in verse 4, which we just read. True, God is perfectly separate from evil. God does not take delight in any wickedness, nor can any evil be in God's presence. This word dwell, it speaks of a temporary residence, like camping, sojourning, spending the night. The idea, as one writer said, evil cannot even lodge temporarily in God's presence. Another writer said, the psalmist's point is that God is so incompatible with evil that even the most temporary coexistence is utterly impossible. Habakkuk 1 verse 13 says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. 1 John 1 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Literally, it's, in him is no darkness, nothing. <laughs> it's like just emphatic. Not at all. So the teaching of this text is the holiness of God. Now, the holiness of God is kind of a, a big concept to get your hands around. The basic idea, though, is separateness. It's distinctness, otherness. And so before we talk about God's moral holiness, where he is separate from sin, there's a more fundamental concept that God is just simply other. He's just different. God is not just like a a pumped-up version of a human. He is just totally distinct. There's a creator and a creature distinction. He is transcendently distinct from his creatures. And so this is a way in which God is just unique, and all of his attributes are this way. He is unique in all of them. He is other. But then the corollary to that is that, therefore, the implication is, when it comes to sin and unrighteousness, that he is completely separate from other uh, in, in that way. He's separate and distinct from sin and all evil because of his character. Scott Christensen writes, All his moral actions are circumscribed by his righteous character. Thus, it is impossible for him to entertain an evil thought or, thought or intention. God's intentions are always pure. Job 34, verse 10 says, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding, for far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. David should not fret over Absalom's wickedness, if that's the context, because God is not a God who delights in wickedness. The wicked will not succeed, though they seem to presently. God takes no delight in wickedness. This is a very important verse related to the goodness of God. David not only praises God for his holiness, but we might say God's hatred. God's hatred. Look at verses 5 and 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. Yahweh abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, because God is holy, because God is separate from sin, because He cannot dwell with sin. He therefore hates every expression of sin and those who perpetuate it, perpetrate it rather. You now, God's anger, and God's hatred, is not like ours as sinful creatures. He doesn't lose his temper or get easily irritated or slighted. John Murray writes, We must not predicate of this divine hater those unworthy features which belong to hate as it is exercised by us as sinful men. We must therefore recognize that there is in God a holy hate that cannot be defined in terms of not loving or loving less. One uh, Hebrew dictionary says this about this word hate. It expresses an attitude toward persons and things which are opposed, detested, despised, and with which one wishes to have no contact or relationship. It is therefore the opposite of love. So this is his settled indignation at wrongdoing and wrongdoers. And he he talks about a few categories of people here. It's not exhaustive, but he speaks about the boastful. This is the proud, those who make much of themselves And you can see why he would highlight some of these. They go in contrast to God's character. Every sin goes against God's character. The boastful, they make much of themselves, but only God is to be made much of. They're taking the place of God. Or those who are liars and deceitful. God is the God of truth, and so he is opposed to any who would be deceitful, shading the truth. He abhors the bloodthirsty. He is the God of life, and so he hates those who are bloodthirsty violent. David says then about God, after saying that he will destroy those, he says, you hate all evildoers. Psalm 11, verse 5, very similar statement. Yahweh tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked, and the one who loves violence Psalm 7, verse 11, it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God feels indignation every day. God is never in flux. God never changes his his standards. And so God is always opposed to evil, every form of evil, at all times, to the fullest measure. And so this kind of blows up a cliche statement of, many christians god loves the sinner but hates the sin no god hates the sinner and their sin and yet don't don't hear us wrong god loves the sinner as well but we have to be careful there as well because what do we mean by that what do we mean that god loves the sinner as well as hates the sinner well there's a sense in which god loves his creatures because they bear his image they're image bearers and so there is a general goodwill that God has towards all humanity. There's also the reality that God showers his common grace, we call it, it's not saving grace, it doesn't save them from sin, but it, it is this, this goodness that God showers upon the world in the form of rain, in the form of food, in the form of marriage, uh, the, in the form of so many different things, in the form of not killing sinners immediately for their sin. In, in giving them time to repent, in letting them hear the gospel, even if they don't believe the gospel. All these are expressions of God's kindness and love even to those who will never be saved. This is more of a general love though. I mean, think of the ministry of Jesus, his healing ministry. He, he just indiscriminately healed. I mean, many think that there was just no more sickness in Israel during that time when he was done. It was like a portrait of the kingdom realities when there would be no more sickness or disease. And so he just banishes it. But a lot of those people didn't trust in Christ for salvation. They were happy to take the healing, but not be saved and repent. And so what an expression of God's love even to those who wouldn't be saved. The, The rich young ruler in Mark's account, he leaves. He's sorrowful because he had many possessions after Jesus tells him the gospel. Uh, or prepares him for the gospel. And, uh, and he says, and Jesus loved him. He so said, Jesus loved him. But this is distinct from that love that God has for his own, that, that special love, that discriminating love. God's love for himself is different by far than his general love for sinners. God's love for himself is then expressed towards those who are in his son, Those who are in Christ by virtue of trusting in Christ by faith then experience this special love of God. And so we have to be careful because we don't want the world to think, yeah, God loves me, no big deal, Uh, I don't have to do anything, God's fine with my sin. No. One of the greatest needs for people outside of Christ, they'd be terrified of God. They would be terrified to see the condition that they're in. That God hates them with a holy hatred. He's opposed to them. And yet, and yet, God can still show mercy and kindness and saving love to such a person. To have God's hatred turned away. Some people say, my God is a God of love, not not a God of Hate, well, then your God is an idol. God, hate, so so think about it like this. I think this is really helpful. It, It was for me years ago. God's hatred is an expression of his goodness. God's hatred is an expression of his goodness. For God to be good means he punishes wrongdoing and sin. God is not apathetic towards evil. God is not passive when it comes to evil. He is the perfect judge when you personalize this and you see a great evil perpetuated against you or someone in your family, you desperately want justice for that. That is good. That is right. You are an image bearer. God hates because he is good. You might say good is the fundamental characteristic of God and God's hate is an expression of his goodness when God, comes, uh, when God uh, considers sin in what it is, when God's goodness sees the prospect of sin, He hates. And so this God is a consuming fire, then. And so, as hard as it is for us to think about, even this side, even as Christians, we go, how how could we possibly have joy in heaven when we know that there are people we loved in this world who rejected Christ? and are facing the wrath of God, will that diminish our joy? I don't say this flippantly, but the testimony of Scripture is that far from diminishing our joy, it will increase our joy. That is so shocking for us to hear. Does the punishment of the wicked in hell diminish God's joy? No. No. It is an expression of his goodness. It is something worthy of praise. God is, God's joy isn't diminished at all. It's an expression. In fact, in Revelation, you have the people praising God that the harlot, Babylon, has been cast down, that she is being judged, that the smoke of her torment goes up forever. Now, on this side of the cross, we just we go, I'm still not there, Lord. I've been brought to that much conformity to your image. but that is the reality. No, it won't steal from our joy. We will see God's goodness expressed, but it's more than that because we will, I don't even know how to express it because there's the reality that we were those hated people (laughs) that are now loved people. And so we go, God, I should be there. It is so good for you to punish the unrighteous in hell. And yet I was there, I should be there, and I'm, an ex- I'm a recipient of your life. And, and so this is where the, the, the passage pivots. This is the focal point in verse seven, where he says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. So David doesn't say, but I, Lord, I don't do those things. I'm not like other sinners. I, I fast twice a day. He doesn't sound like the, the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. He says, Lord, you showed abundant loving kindness to me. This is where I was trying to say earlier. This is the first time that word has said, that loving kindness word is used in the Psalms. Not in the Bible, but in the Psalter. And it's this word for, it's a rich word. It speaks about God's covenant keeping love. His loyalty in his love. And he's saying, God, you showed that to me. You showed me that love. He doesn't come based upon his merit. He comes based upon God's love. God gives the credentials for him to enter. And he enters into God's temple or the, a way to speak about the tabernacle, probably at that time, God's dwelling place. Dear Christian, how do you know that God will not stop loving you? Gerhardus Voss said, you can know that God will never stop loving you because he never started to love you. Because he always loved you from all eternity. The foreknowledge of God for the saints means that God set his love upon you from all eternity. This is, a, this is an eternal setting his love upon you. He's always loved you. And so this is the, the complexity of, of the nature of God that, that he can both hate and love and he can hate with a holy hatred those before they have come to repentance and faith and then be loving and gracious to them. Even in his love to grant them faith and grant them repentance and grant them a new heart. What wonder to think of this God And so this is what David does. He praises God for these perfections. These are the perfections to be praised. These aren't the only perfections of God to be praised, but these are some key ones. Love and hate, right? The hatred of God, the love of God. The goodness of God, the grace of God. Let me just say a point of application here. David, I think, is modeling something that's really helpful for us. Maybe you've gone to prayer and you've gotten up and you still kind of felt the same way. And, I'm, and this is not always the case, but maybe it was that you started just immediately asking, and your prayer just was continually asking God for things that were focused upon you, and just it was all about you, and then you left, and you just kind of felt the same. And what David does here is he hasn't asked anything yet. He hasn't got to the petitions. He just has prepared his prayer, and then he praises God for his perfections and then he begins to petition God. I found, in my own experience, when I spend a good deal of time meditating upon God's truth, God's word, who he is in prayer, what I mean by that is just pressing those truths in, just reminding myself of those truths, rehearsing those truths, before I begin to ask, it totally shaped. And I go, like, what was I coming to ask God for? Like, what was I, what was my request? And I'm just, I'm just so changed. Because when you look at yourself your problems remain, right? When you're like so self-focused still, even in your prayer, you can go away going, I just feel the same, downcast. But when you look to God and you continue to rehearse and remind yourself of who God is and what he has done, and then, you, and then you go, oh God, you've shaped the way I'm gonna pray now and I'm just so changed. And so David models that for us. It's so helpful for us to orient our thoughts in prayer to God. I mean, just think about this. If God never answered a prayer of yours, I know this is a hypothetical. God, never answered your prayer. It would still be so sweet to just rehearse God and rehearse who he is and just say, oh God, you're this, you're that. Oh God, you've done this and you've done that. And just tell God what he's done. I mean, our hearts would be so warmed by just that experience. But then God says, oh, I'll answer your prayers. I'll hear and I'll answer. What a God, what a God this is. I'm just trying to uh, woo you to pray. <laughs> I'm just trying to entice you to, to come to this God in prayer for yourself. Let me just say a word here about the petitions then finally to bring in prayer. So David has prepared himself. He's prepared his prayer. He's praised the perfections of God. Now he's ready. He is ripe to praise or to to, to petition God. And there's really three petitions, one for himself, one for the wicked, and one for the righteous, fellow godly, because they have been saved. Look at verse 8. Lead me, O Yahweh in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Really, he prays for guidance here, for direction. Lord, I need to know what the righteous way is here. I need to know what honors you in this situation. And it's just so easy times when we're being attacked by others to want to respond in kind, right? Maybe you know this. Uh, There's a conflict and and it's heating up and you want to defend yourself. And and so you start to respond in kind. You start to bring accusations. and, And so, David is praying very practically, I think, as he's being attacked, Lord, help me to walk in the righteous way. And why? why do I say that? Because in verse nine, he says, for there is no truth in their mouth. They're lying about him. He could be tempted to do the same. So Lord, lead me in the righteous way. God, guide me. What a prayer. I mean, this is constantly a, a prayer that we need, a, guide, a, a prayer to guide us, that we would be led in righteousness. Having been declared righteous by God because of his love for us, we then desire to live for God in righteousness. And so we pray to God, Lord, help us to be conformed to your image. Help us to honor you. Conform me to the image of Christ. Sanctify me in the truth, Lord. Your word is true. Lead me in the way. Give me wisdom, Lord, for this situation. That's his prayer for himself. Then he prays that God would bring justice upon the wicked. And he just highlights who they are. Verse 9, for there is no truth in their mouth, Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. It's kind of a bracket here. There's no truth in their mouth, and they flatter with their tongue. They're slippery. There's nothing firm in what they say. And then why is that? Because in the middle, he says, their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. He's saying there's bad stuff coming out because there's bad stuff within. They have a dead heart. This is like Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Jesus said you're like whitewashed tombs. You have, you know, beautiful on the outside, but inside are dead men's bones. This is the same concept. The deadness of the human heart before regeneration. And he says, in light of that, because they are this way, God, verse 10, make them bear their guilt. It really is saying, declare them guilty. Declare them to be who they are, God. Be true to yourself. He's concerned not about himself. David's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about God's glory and reputation and name. So make them bear their guilt, O oh God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. So God judge them because they, they've sinned against you. It's called an imprecatory psalm. But, but he, uh, imprecatory prayer, praying imprecation upon his enemies. But he's really just saying, God, do what you must do to stay God. <laughs> if you don't punish the guilty, you're not God anymore. But God, do what you said you would do. Your kingdom come, your will be done. To pray that prayer means God is going to come and establish righteousness, but in order to do that, he must deal with all evil and sin and remove that. So it's inherently a prayer like this. It's just tightened up, a little shorter. This is the opposite of what God does for us in justification. He says, declare them guilty. What does he do in justification? He declares us to be righteous. He can do that and be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ because he declares us righteous, not on a legal fiction, but because Jesus actually obeyed the law as the second Adam in our place, as our head, so that we would have that righteousness given to us and that he would pay then the debt that we had incurred from our sin. So God is completely just and righteous and good in punishing. Think about it like this. Christ The son of God's love, the beloved, endures the wrath of God, the hatred of God on the cross, so that those who were hated by God could be loved by God for all eternity. I mean, that's the gospel, that that he pours out his wrath upon Christ, his beloved, and then he can show love to those whom were once hated because of their sin. And then finally, David prays for other believers. Verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you, for you bless the righteous, O Yahweh. You cover them with favor as with a shield. Really, he just highlights the pleasures to enjoy in prayer. It's like prayer is like a refuge. Oh, when we come to God, we're like taking refuge in him. And he's saying there's joy to be had there. There's singing for joy. There's protection by God. And then he says that those who love your name may exalt in you. Why why, why do you love God's name, his character, his perfection? Because God has worked that in you. And of course, we're in different places and you you grow in your Christian life and your love for his name, for for who he is. But as you learn more about him, you go, oh God, you're so good. I love this about you. This is so amazing. But here's what happens. As you grow more like Christ, more like God, there's a reordering of your loves and hates, right? So you begin to love what God loves and hate what God hates increasingly until glory. When you rightly love all that God loves, you see his glory as the greatest good and you hate the perfect hatred what he hates. What, a, what an encouragement for us. What a challenge for us to not take our sin lightly. To not think about our sin lightly. Oh, this is just a little sin. This is just this is a little, it's a white lie. This is just a, it's just a little, I'm just going to click on this and look at it for a second. I'm just going to make a sharp comment and, and that's it. You know, just one little jab. I mean, sin becomes so repulsive to us when we look at God's character. When we go, God, you detest all sin and sinners. And yet, we start in the beginning kind of addressing different ways people think. For the Christian, for the Christian, God is not angry at you. He can't be. He can't be. Because you are in Christ. Because you are in his Son, the Beloved, the one who's eternally been loved by the Father. You're now in him. So now you are constantly loved. Now, yes, we grieve the God. We, we, we sin against the light yet he disciplines us. There's a displeasure there. Far from hatred, though, for we are in the beloved. He covers us with his shield. He shows his favor to us, protects us, watches over us. What a happy contrast. One writer points out that the last word in Hebrew, this idea that God covers him, cover him with, the, with favors, with a shield, is only used one other time. In the Old Testament, in First Samuel twenty-three, twenty-six, it describes a hostile force that's closing in on David from Saul, and, and and right before they've got David, they're like, "We got him," and they're about to surround him and destroy him. And then Saul hears, "Oh, the Philistines are attacking you," and he's like, "Oh man, I got to fight them." And he's like, "Leaves," <laughs> and, and they leave David. And uh, that's this idea: you cover him, you cover him, protect him. Nothing can touch the believer who has God's favor. Even in death, they're secure. I mean, what a gospel-focused prayer. The holiness of God, the hatred of God for sinners, and also the love of God. The depravity of the human heart like a, like, a, like a pit, like an open tomb. Hopelessness apart from love and mercy. It speaks of the love of God by which a person may enter God's presence and worship rightly. And it speaks to the way one is to respond to God. Implied in this is repentance for sin and a refuge in God. What a God, what a salvation, what a psalm, what a prayer. May it be that we're taught in this school of prayer how to more effectively bring our requests to God and praise the perfections of God. Let's pray. Lord we thank you for this time to rehearse your character, to think about these things. Oh Lord, may it be that you would blow away like chaff anything I said that was unhelpful and may there be a sticking quality to that which was true and and right, Lord, and may you bring about closer intimacy with you through your word and through prayer. Lord, we're all wanting to pray better and more faithfully, and you're so kind to us, so patient with us. May this just be a a means not to guilt us, but to graciously draw us into your presence through prayer more and more. We thank you for the mercy and the grace you've shown to us, the love you've shown to us in Christ that we celebrate now in the Lord's Supper. May it encourage our hearts as a means of your persevering grace. In Jesus' name, amen.